And uh, last week we were in the book of Second John, and we saw two great con uh, concepts for our for our spiritual growth. And I have told you how that the uh, the writings that John writes, he writes from a very unique perspective. And we saw this in a great way Thursday night and uh, with some of the questions that you ask. And we saw how this thing worked its way out. And uh, it's, a, it's a great. We saw the practical side because John is a perfect picture of what your life and my life should be as a New Testament Christian. And then we saw the doctrinal slant. We saw how that John also represents God's viewpoint and God's plan for the nation of Israel. So we saw how that uh, the great concepts uh, laid out. We talked about, you know, that one little chapter, verses 1 through 6. It focused on uh, our walk with God. And then chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 7 through 13, focused on us receiving a full reward. And I showed you how that that lays out from a practical standpoint, your life and my life, and also from a doctrinal standpoint, how it really relates to the nation of Israel. Now, when we come to the book of 3 John, the book of 3 John, as I said, the author here writes from a unique perspective. He has the complete viewpoint of God's plan with the nation of Israel and God's plan for the church. And in his books, you find both of those plans laid out, one in a practical application, one in a doctrinal application. So the breakdown of this book is really, really, really simple. It's really basic. And uh, I've given you a breakdown of every book in the Bible, and I do that so that when you begin to read your Bible, you begin to know before you start what to look for. I give you all the keys, give you all the concepts, all the stuff that you really need to see and understand how it works for you. Now you take the book of 3 John. The book of 3 John is simply built around two men. Two men. And these two men are going to form the study that we're going to take today. First of all, we're going to study these two men from a practical standpoint. We're going to see how they apply in your life and my life as a 21st century Christian. Then we're going to look at these two men from a doctrinal standpoint. And we're going to look at these two men as they represent the nation of Israel. And I think that it'll help pull a lot of things together for you today. I think that from a practical standpoint, you'll go out of here better understanding a lot of things about uh, the ministry. And uh, I'm, I'm so severely, severely going to focus on now with all the opportunities for our men and women on you understanding the concept of ministry. I'm going to bring all the other ones along, and I'm going to work wherever you're at, but there's a number of you who have been with us for a while now that, boy, you are right in the mix of this, and you've got to understand some things about the ministry uh, because you're, you're teetering on the edge of just really being able to uh, get into something you can sink your teeth into. And, you know, God's been good to us, and I praise Him for that. The first man we're going to look at is the man named Gaius. And uh, Gaius is a man that talks about in verses, in verses 1 through 8. You only got one chapter here in this little book. And verses 1 through 8 is about a man named Gaius. Now, Gaius is a good man. And the theme in these first eight verses about Gaius is simply the fact that he is, has a great service for God in truth. Gaius represents really what the ministry should be. And we're going to look about all of the attributes in Gaius' life here as we come through it. But Gaius is a man that uh, 
uh, he's a good model to follow. We're going to see that. And then in verses 9 through verses 14, you have another man. His name is Diotrephes. Diotrephes. Now, Diotrephes, he's talked about in verses 9 through 14. And he's a bad man, not very good man at all. And the theme about Diotrephes' life is the fact that he is evil by pride. So we have a contrast here from a practical sense of two men. One man is a man whose service for God is in truth. And we're going to look all at the attributes of that. Uh, the other man, Diotrephes, is a man that is a bad man, and the theme there is his evilness by pride. Now, both these men, doctrinally, they represent the nation of Israel. We'll get to that in a little bit later on. Right now, we're going to focus on the inspirational, how it applies to your life and my life and the great lessons in these men's lives and what we can learn from it. You know the Bible is full of people. I, I don't know how many characters are in the Bible. I mean, the Bible is a book about people. And uh, I, I always wanted to get a count of them, but I, I don't think my life is that long. I mean, there's just, there's just so many people in the Bible. You know, a couple of weeks ago, and again, then we talked about this on, on, uh, on Thursday night, you know, about character studies. And the reason why there are so many people in the Bible is because they represent the things that you and I go through. Obviously, if you're a Christian and you're going through some really, really, really tough times, Job would be a book for you to understand why that is. If you're a young person and you're growing in the Lord and you're right in the middle of things and yet there's conflict in your life like so many of us have talked about this week, you're trying to do what's right, but, you know, you got those little bumps in the road, Abraham's life would be a good life for you to study. All of those men in the Bible, and, you know, those are the more famous ones. There's some men in the Bible that are great studies that most people never heard of. And the older you get into the Word of God, and the more you have a relationship with God, the more you begin to focus not on the great characters that we all know about, but boy, you begin to glean into the things that, that aren't maybe too apparent. I mean, who ever heard a message on Gaius? I mean, there's a guy in the book of Philippians called Epaphrodites. Who ever heard a sermon on, on him? And you find that all the way through the Bible. Back in the Old Testament, we know the story of Jonathan. Jonathan's got one of the greatest character studies about Jonathan. is not Jonathan himself, but study the story back there about Jonathan's armor bearer. He's not even named in the Bible. Yet he's one of the greatest studies on faithfulness in the ministry that you're going to find. And you know, and I, you know what? I'll, I'll tell you this too. The more you learn the Bible, the more you become friends with those characters. And the more you become personal friends with those characters, the more you see yourself in those characters. But i got to tell you, I'm the kind of guy that, and this is true of all of us, we all meet people in life, and I know that in my own life, you know, I meet people today that remind me of people that I hung out with in high school that I haven't seen for 40 years. And it's just because of human nature and character trait. I'll tell you something else. I, when you learn the Bible and you learn the characters of the Bible and the men in the Bible and the women in the Bible, and you really get to know them, when God gives you a ministry or you start building people or working with people or in, in any church scenario that's Bible-based, you're going to find people in that church that remind you of people in the Bible. I mean, you just do. 
I kid little Rebecca. Where's little, I kid little Rebecca that she's my centurion. And there's five centurions in the New Testament. And they are, they're, every one of them, every time you find a centurion in the Bible, he's a good man. And a centurion in the Bible represents something. And I, you know, I, I have my little, and maybe I don't ever tell you, but I have my little, I, I, I look at you and I say to myself, he's this, she's that. And I mean, you got a guy in there in the book of Acts, his name is called Barnabas. You know what the name Barnabas means? It means son of consolation. I see Barnabas in a lot of you guys and some of you gals. I really do. I mean, you got characters like Peter. We talked about when we studied the books that Peter wrote, how that Peter represented so many times of a young Christian. There's so many young men in my life that have reminded me of what Peter probably was like. And uh, there's guys that uh, remind me of, of Paul. There's women that remind me of the mother of Jesus, Mary. And they're great studies. I mean, you study Peter, Paul, and Mary and then take their lives and how they got that little band together and traveled around the world. I mean, there isn't a young man or a young lady that I don't deal with one-on-one -on -one in the Bible that I don't look at you like Paul must have looked at Timothy. And I love you in that sense. In the Bible, there's a story of, of two sisters, Mary and Martha. Mary is a, a picture of what our lives should be. Martha is a picture of what, as a Christian, our lives shouldn't be. I found men and women in the Bible that remind me of Mary and Martha. We find a story about Thomas. I find people that remind me of Thomas. And, uh, you know, they have to be proven everything. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But I know Steve Brackeen Sr. back there, you hate to sell a car to a Thomas, don't you? You ever meet one of those guys that they, they come back nine or 15 times before they buy a car and they got so many questions, after a while you just know once you sell them a car, they're going to be a pain in your neck for the next six months. You just say, go buy a Chevy. <laughs> those are Thomases. I mean, they want to know everything. Well, when you close the door, does the door latch go down or does it go up? Well, I don't know. Stick your head in there and we'll close it and we'll find out. I don't know. But those are Thomases, you see. I talked about a minute ago in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 25 through 26. You got that guy, Epaphrodites? There are six things about Epaphrodites' life in one verse that make him one of the greatest studies anywhere in the Bible. And I see a lot of you. I see a lot of Epaphrodites in a lot of you guys and gals. There are six things said about him that you got to have to really have a ministry in any working New Testament Bible-believing church and Epaphrodite's got all six of them, man. And you want to study? Study it. And each one of those six things will lead you to an hour study. But I see a lot of you like that. A lot of you like that. So we got Gaius. And Gaius is a good man. He's a, he's a man that uh, he really has a good... Well, let's read it. Let's read chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Here's what it says. It says, The elder under the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou, dost, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. 
because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Father, bless us today as we come to your word. Help us to look at these two men. Help us to see it from a practical side and then a doctrinal side. And help us, Lord, to be like Gaius. Help us to be like all the good men in the Bible, whether we're male or female or not. It doesn't matter. The character studies are about our relationship with God. And character knows no gender. Character is not male or female. There isn't a different character for a female and a different character for men. Character is character, and it simply means that you do what's right all of your life as God gives you the light to do it. Help us today, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, verse 1 says this, The elder, that's John, unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Now, I think that's a great statement. And this is a great setup for the practical side of this book. You know, as Christians, the thing that we have that we love each other, I mean, you take our church. Now, our church is not a problem-free church. It never will be. Anytime you got a bunch of people together, you got the potential for problems. But let me tell you what keeps problems in a church with human beings uh, to a minimum. And it is not just loving each other, but it's loving the book that God gave us and loving each other through that book. Now, that's the difference. That's why if this church stays on the track that it's on, and I know it won't be perfect, and I know that you'll have someplace down the line, somebody will have a problem with something, but that's just the way that it goes. But, but I'm just saying this. You compare all the churches that are out there and some of the horrendous problems they go through. I can tell you this. We're all human, and we all have the problems that we have. And uh, sometimes, you know, given, you know, circumstances, we can rub each other the wrong way. But we're a family, you see, and the difference is that you allow your brother or sister to lop you up alongside the head, but if you go out and some stranger does it, you're going you're to deal with it differently. And that's the way it is in the body of Christ. We're supposed to put up with each other because we're supposed to understand that we all have our shortcomings and our downfalls. In other words, instead of hurting each other, our job is to help and uplift each other. Now, where do you get that concept? You get it from the Bible. That is not a natural thing. The natural tendency for us is to hurt other people. That's why little kids do it when they're growing up. Yeah. Your little girl or boy will come home from school or even come home from Sunday school and they'll say, so-and-so wouldn't play with me today or so-and-so told everybody something about me that wasn't true and nobody wants. That's the way little kids are, you see. Now, unfortunately, a lot of God's people fall into that same category because they never grew up either. But when you get into the Bible and you love the Bible and the truth of the Word of God is the core value system of your life, then you view each other the way we do as a family and you put up with my idiosyncrasies, if I would have had any, you put up with, with the person's <laughs> problems next to you, like Jimmy's, <laughs> Joe's, no. We put up with each other. Because you know what? We're all human. Every one of us do dumb things. Every one of us think dumb things. Every one of us uh, have room for improvement. But when your basis is the truth, and you love the Word of God as much as I do, then our fellowship, like John and Gaius, is in the truth. And you build those special relationships because you get a higher calling. You get a higher vision. You realize that the pettiness of life, the things in your job, 
the little things that distract you, as the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, the weight that does so easily beset us are secondary things because we got a higher vision and a higher goal, and it takes all of us together. I love telling each one of you in an individual way how special you are to me and my family and my ministry, and because you all are in a unique way. And I don't just say it because I'm trying to get points. I don't need any points. I don't want any points. I genuinely love you because the fact that you love the Bible. I don't love you because you're pretty. I don't love you because you're nice. I don't love you because you're my friend. I love you because you love the book that I love. And in that, you're the most lovable people in the world. And that is what we're always going to fall back on when the little bumps and grinds come. That will always be the thing that will hold us together when everybody else is flying off into outer space. That's what they had. And he says, Gaius, whom I love in the truth. And wow, what a great statement that is. You know what? There's no, there is no room for racism in, in God's church. I think racism is a terrible thing. And I think it's something that divides in such an evil way, in a wicked way. That how a man can look at a man's color of a man's skin or a woman's skin. And then because of that, whether it's black or it's red or it's yellow, I, it doesn't make any difference to me. I mean, I like the little song I sang growing up. Black and yellow, red and white, they're all precious to his sight. Jesus loved the little children of the world. That's the way it is. And you know why that is? Is because God, when you understand the truth of it, that there is no race card with God, you begin to understand why that is. Is <clears throat> because that God is a different race than I am. I'm a fallen race. He's of a divine race. God has different standards than I have. God has a different culture than I've got. God looks at things totally different than I do, and yet we love the truth because the truth is God is so totally different from us, yet God still loved us in spite of that. And that there is the basis of our relationship as a church. And that's why when John writes this thing out, he writes this thing out in 3 John from the practical. He's showing you the fellowship that we love each other in the truth. And then he says in verse 2, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. Now, with this verse, we see a great concept again. He says, I wish above all things. And we find out that there's two types of prosperity in the world. Prosperity is something that we all want to some degree or the other. And the Bible clearly teaches that there is a physical prosperity, that would be money, and there is a spiritual prosperity, which is your spiritual relationship with God. And when you understand all of these concepts and you realize that there's physical health, that's your body, and then there's a, there's a spiritual health, that's your soul and your new nature, you find that we are to build together those two concepts. I want you to be healthy spiritually as much as I want you to be healthy physically. I want you to prosper spiritually. This is called the true riches in the Bible. This is the riches that the Laodicean church has lost. And this is the true riches that anybody can have today, even though we're in the Laodicean church, if you really want it. Now, that's why 
I minister to my people the way that I do. I am like a multi-trillionaire who wants to give you all the money I've got. Except I don't have physical money. I have spiritual riches. I want to give you everything that God has given me. I want to take you aside and spend whatever time it takes. I want you to, I want you just as a, right now in high schools out there, there are coaches who are working their football teams and basketball teams and baseball teams with guys on there who they see great potential. And they're doing everything they can to get that kid into a good college where he can, he can, he can be a great ball player. And there is nothing wrong with that. Coaches take physical young men who have the ability to play ball, sports, and what they do is they give them the extra attention and they work with them, they fine-tune them, and they see in them something that they don't see in somebody else because that's what coaches are supposed to look for. And so they build in that kid all of his knowledge, all of his years of coaching, and he tries to get that kid the best shot he can when it goes to college, when he goes to wherever he's going, and who knows where it'll lead. Well, that's what I do for you in a spiritual sense. Only when I'm not trying to get you into a college. I'm trying to get you to the judgment seat of Christ where you'll stand before God with your family with everything that God has for you, a full reward. We talked about it last week. And I know that to do that, you know, I have to work at giving you those concepts that you need. Now, our country is in a mess. Terrible mess. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why it is. America was once built on the core value system of the Word of God. And this is nothing new to you. Our founding fathers believed the Bible. They understood the Bible. And they built into the Constitution the Word of God. They knew that God had delivered them from a tyranny. They knew that God, and that's why they formed a republic and not a democracy. They wanted God. In fact, the first time the declaration came in, when they wrote it, the, the fathers looked at it and they said, not enough references to God, send it back, put some more references to God, because the bottom line is, we wouldn't be here if God hadn't done for us what God did. Credible. Those are core values. And yet at the same time, half of the founding fathers were not even Christians. You see, back then, even the unsaved people had core values. We've come to the place today where Christians, saved people, don't have any core values. And that's where we've come from. Heard on the news last week, coach up in Washington State, re quit his job, good coach, enlisted all of the things that this guy had done. And you know why he was forced to resign? Because he prayed with his ball team before they had a game. The parents were outraged. Somebody called the school board and, and told them and gave them the fact that there was prayer activity in the school system. Oh. <coughs> called the National Guard. Prayer activity in the school system, you see. We've lost our core values. Now, here's a man that would get your kids off drugs. Here's a man who would keep your kids off of drugs. 
He would give them a good role model. I can't tell you the list of things that this guy had done in the community. And you know what he said? He said, I'm not a preacher. He says, I'm just somebody who believes there's a value system that helps produce the right kind of kid. Can't have you here. That's what's wrong with us. That's what's wrong with Christianity. I'm your coach. We're getting ready for a big game. It has nothing to do with the Chiefs. It's called the game of life. And the devil's pitching. And he's got a fastball that's the most unbelievable thing you ever saw in your life. It will shriek past you so fast that when the catcher does catch it, his glove will catch on fire. We're in the game of life. Except the winner and the losers don't go home. The winners go to heaven. The losers die and go to hell. That's the game that we're in. And you and I need to understand that we need to prosper spiritually. I don't know if you ever saw it or not. But in the Word of God, the Word of God is likened to seven food groups. And if you have these things in a physical sense, you could survive. First of all, John chapter 4, the Word of God is likened to water. It's got to have water. Luke chapter 4, verse 4, the Word of God is likened to bread. Good stable. Hebrews chapter 5, the Word of God is likened to meat. There's your sirloin steak, prime rib, filet mignon. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Word of God is likened to milk. In Psalms chapter 119 and other places, it's likened to honey. In Proverbs chapter 7, it's likened to apples. And in Psalm 78, it's likened to vegetables. You know what the Word of God provides for your spiritually? It provides you a balanced diet. It gives you spiritually what you need that your soul may prosper as well as your physical body. Let's face it. We don't eat right physically. We don't grow the way. That's why little kids growing up, mom and dad don't want them to eat the junk food. They, want them to, they don't want them. And that's why in America, our kids growing up, are, uh, America is the most obese country in the world when it comes to children. Now, I know when you get older, you get gland problems and all those kinds of things and, and medical things add to the thing. I, I understand that. But when it comes to our children, little kids who look like you had twins in the same pair of pants, it all comes down because of the fact that nutrition-wise, we're feeding the wrong thing. And the churches are feeding God's people spiritually the wrong things. And this country physically is a mess. And it's spiritually it's a mess. And so he says, you know what? He says, I wish above all things that you, you were healthy physically and you were healthy spiritually. That's what he wants for them. And of course, you know, most God's people don't understand that as a Christian, unconfession in your life can bring about physical illness. You've got to read 1 Corinthians 11. Most young people today don't understand that the rule of thumb for your long life, when you get 50, 60, 70, 80, and 90, how God gives you longevity of your life is based on how you deal with your parents as you're growing up as a teenager, when you're 14, 15, and 16. Oh, yeah, over there in uh, Ephesians 6, the Bible says it's the first commandment, honor and obey your mother and father. It's the first commandment with promise. You know what the promise? Only commandment given of the ten that has a promise with it. You know what the promise is? If you don't obey them right, God cuts your life short on the other end. How many young people know that? Nobody. 
And what's even worse, when you tell them, they don't care. Because we have no core values anymore. Now look at verse 3 and 4. Here's a great side note. I like this. Gaius has the truth in him, and he's walking in the truth. And he says in verse 4, No greater joy than my children. Now that brings us to the place, probably, that Gaius is a man that Paul won to Christ, because that is his favorite term for his sons in the Lord. Again, we see old or, or John, excuse me, John winning this guy of the Lord. John won this guy of the Lord just like Paul won his Timothy. And we see here that this is a guy that probably at some point in his life, John had won to Christ. And now he's looking at him just like Paul looks at his young men, and he says, my children. No greater joy than my children showing you that John has an intimate connection with not only Gaius, but the church here. Then he says in verse 5, and I like this. He says, and now I, uh, he says, uh, beloved, thou, <coughs> that thou doest faithfully whatever thou doest to the brethren and the strangers. That tells me that old Gaius was faithful in his ministry. And it didn't matter if he was doing something with saved people or he was doing something with lost people. He was faithful in ministry. Faithfulness is the greatest key you can have. Faithfulness to the Word of God first. Faithfulness to everything else in its priority level. And when you become faithful to the Word of God first and the Lord Jesus Christ, you have those things in your life that whatever God gives you to do, you'll be faithful with it. And I'm telling you, it's, it, in our life, in your life, in my life, it comes down to this. When America and American Christianity loses its core values, it loses its discipline. And I don't know the worst time today. And I, you know what? I grew up in the 50s and the 60s. And I remember Christianity even before I got saved. Because I went in and out of church all of my life. But certainly, you know, as a young man growing up and my own parents and the church that we were going to, there was a different mindset about God and Christianity. There was a discipline that is missing today. Christians were nowhere near as flaky as they are today. And the reason why they're flaky today is because of the fact they have no value system in their life. They don't know what it means to be faithful. Some of God's people can't get to church three Sundays in a row. And they got everything else in the world going. Let me tell you something. If you had three chief game tickets in a row, you would be there. If it was what you wanted to do, you would never miss it. But you see, when it comes down to God, we all, in this world we're living in, God is a little world all by himself that we only get to when nothing else we want to really do is in our way. And that's a terrible way to be. And that's the way Christianity is today. And we have to come to the point that we understand that the watchword for you and for me is faithfulness. When you take a ministry, like I talked to you boys about the volleyball, it isn't, it isn't a volleyball league where we're trying to put in the aspect of ministry. No, it's a ministry where you're trying to figure out how to get volleyball into it. And you have to be faithful. Faithful. Those little kids down there, we have to be faithful when we teach. We don't look at it, well, it's big church, but when we get down there to, uh, down there in the nursery down there, it's just, well, I just got to do my thing today. No, it's faithful. God says if you're faithful over the little things, he'll make you faithful over the big things. 
comes your time to do the nursery, you show up and say, oh, am I in there today? How is God going to trust you with something big when he can't trust you with something that small? You see, faithfulness is the key. Faithfulness is the key. Now, we get so busy with everything else in life, we forget to be faithful with the most important things in life. And that's just the way that it is. He's faithful to the brethren and the strangers. Verse 6 says that he displays charity before the church. Charity, as I've said before, is unconditional giving of yourself to others based on God's unconditional giving to you. That's charity. You see, Gaius is both an example and an example. An example is something that you are. An example is something that you do. And we see that he's a good man, and in his life, he is both examples. He's an example, and he's an example. He does it, and he lives it. And that's the key. And that is the practical side of where Gaius is and why John loves him. Then we have in chapter 1, verses 19 through 14, we have the study of diatrophies. And this is the contrast of two men. Now, boys, I say this primarily to the men. You need to learn this study. You need to watch this study. Because some of you, a year from now, five years from now, and you ladies too, but some of you five years from now, if the Lord tarries is coming, or ten years from now, I told you this the other night, you're going to be heading up large areas of ministry. You're going to take a piece of the pie for me, and I'm going to say, okay, this is your baby. You're responsible for it. You're accountable for it. I've taught you everything I know. You're going to have eight or nine, ten or twelve, fifteen, two hundred people under you that you're going to have to manage, and you're going to have to be a pastor to them, just like I was a pastor to you. Now, my point is this. The reason why, from a practical standpoint, that he talks about Gaius and he talks about Diotrephes is because in the ministry, you find both kind of people. You find the people that try to help you with everything they can, and you find the people who will wind up trying to hurt you. It's just the way that it is. Well, let's read about our old buddy Diotrephes here. Verse 9, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence among them, received us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doth a prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that uh, would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil has not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and you know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not uh, with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. Now there are some great lessons here. And I said, now we've seen Gaius, and Gaius represents the Christian the way they should be. Diotrephes represents the other side of that. Now, let's talk about it and, and define him for a second. Because when you read this, and I want you to fully understand what I'm saying, because from this point on, with all that God is opening up, and all that God is doing us, I'm going to talk in real frank terms to you guys, because I expect you to pick it up and, and, and 
And like we talked about last week or the week before last, whenever it was, about uh, manning your watch and looking for things that will hurt the work of God, the diatrophies in life will hurt the work of God. Now, first of all, I want you to understand, this is not some unsaved guy here. This is not some kid who never comes to church. This is not some kid who has one foot in the world and one foot out in, in, in church. No, 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 no. The diatrophies of life will go to church every Sunday. And brother, they will never miss. We're not talking about unsaved people here who are hell raisers that go out on Saturday night. Diatrophies go to bed by 9.30. And they're in church every Sunday morning. They wouldn't miss it. But he stands in opposition to what God is trying to do. In this case, John is trying to work with his church, and Diotrephes is against John. Now, I don't understand that. I mean, I don't understand why they were against Paul. But it goes to show you it doesn't matter how God chooses you, or it doesn't matter that you may be God's man at any particular ministry that you're in charge of, the diatrophies don't ever see that. Now, we're going to detail out this guy, because it's all right here. And I want you to understand not only who this guy is, but I want you to understand why he is who he is. And it's real simple. You ask yourself, how in the world does something like this happen? It's so simple. It's, it's simply this. At some point in his Christian life, Diotrephes quit growing. He quit worrying about the prosperity of his new nature. He quit growing. At some point in his life, he just simply said, you know what? I know a lot of things about the Bible. I even know the Bible. He fell into the trap that the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, that knowledge puffeth up. The Bible says, the book of Colossians chapter 2, that when we get puffed up, we become fleshy. And he fell into the trap from what the Bible says, he fell into the trap of pride. He fell into the trap of pride. So instead of being uh, John's partner, instead of being John's co-laborer, or as John says in verse 8 uh, of the last verse on, on Gaius, Instead of being a fellow helper, he begins to view John as competition. He begins to view John as someone that he begins to resent. And the answer is so easy. Verse 9 is very instructive. It says this, I wrote unto the church, but Diophrophes, who loved to have the preeminence among them, received of not. Now there's the first problem he's got. He loved the preeminence of men. He loved to walk around the church, and that's why he never misses a Sunday. He wants to walk around the church and say, hey, look at me. Now, he doesn't walk up and say, look at me, but he walks around and he always wants to say, look at me. He wants to present himself as someone who knows everything there is to know about the Bible. He wants to present himself as someone that uh, really uh, uh, just, uh, he doesn't do the ministry because he loves God. He does the ministry so he can be recognized as a spiritual giant. Oh, yeah. Now, in my life through the ministry in the last 35 years of my life, i got to say I've been lucky. If you would turn to my Bible 
and you'd come to the book of 3 John and you'd look at this story of Diotrephes, you'd find there's six names listed. Those six names are the Diotrephes in my life. You would find that there were six men in my life down through my ministry that were to me what Diotrephes was to John. And uh, the reason why I do that, because when John wrote this, he said, I mean, he said, he said, I will remember his deeds. And I don't ever want to forget the deeds of the Diotrephes that have been in my life, because they taught me great lessons. And I know that my ministry and my life and with God is going to go on for a while until uh, Jesus comes and God takes me home. And I know that there are great opportunities for another Diotrephes to come into my world. Once you see, no, once you smell a Diotrephes, that smell never leaves your nose. There are certain traits that all Diotrephes have. And once you see it and once you recognize it, then it's just a matter of, of watching out and what takes place. Verse 10 says that they prating against us, Pratting means talking much without saying nothing. With malicious words. See, Diotrephes' problem is simple. He's jealous of the fact that God has chosen John and using John. He thinks God made a mistake and should have chose him. So he maligns John's ministry behind his back always. Diotrephes always work behind your back. That's because Diotrephes in general principle are cowards. That's why they never do anything for God. They always are in the slippy, slimy, slippery slopes of nowhere. And that's why it's always behind your back. And it's in every case of those six young men, it was always behind my back. And I'm lucky. I know guys that, that had their whole ministry is filled with them. But I'm telling you guys this. I'm not telling you this because I'm saying Okay, if there's a Diotrephes out there, I want you to know I'm on to you. I don't have any here. We don't have a Diotrephes here. We don't have any. I'm telling you that right up front. So I'm not telling you so I can kind of give you the nudge. I'm telling you so I can give you the nudge. Guys, when you're in charge, watch out for these things. Because there will be people who will not be your fellow helper in time that will try to sandbag you. I see it a lot of times, not here, but I've seen it in past when I give a young Christian like Joe, or, or not John, but or Marion back here, or, or not Jimmy, but uh, some of you young guys at uh, Woody or, you know, Steve or one of these guys, and I give you something to do, and I put you in charge of it, and some older Christian resents that because they're thinking, Bob made a mistake. He must have had a brain lapse and forgot that I'm the greatest spiritual giant he ever had. So then you will try to sandbag the young guy that I just put in there because you want to make a statement, and you do. You make a statement of how stupid you are. And you don't fool anybody. Diotrephes didn't fool anybody. Because the key is here, one thing, fellow laborer, fellow worker. We're all in this to help. It doesn't matter who's in charge. It doesn't matter who's in charge. When I put myself, I'm on Jimmy's volleyball team. Now, if Jimmy doesn't have to worry about the fact, well, well, I'm the captain, but you know what? Bob's just going to, because he's going to throw his weight around because he's the pastor, you know, and he'll, no, no, no. I'll sit in the corner and won't say anything until Johnny, till he says, you can speak, Bob. You know why? Because that's what you got to do when a man's in charge. I don't care who I am. 
If I put you in charge and I'm under you, then I submit myself to you. You tell me what to do, I'll do it. Jimmy wants me to take a wet towel and cube up the baby puke off the floor before we play. I'll give it to my daughters and say, yeah, go ahead and do that. <laughs> I'm submissive. I don't care. The greatest way you teach those things is by example. Now, I don't know why some of God's people can't see that. And Diotrephes' problem is so simple. He's jealous of the fact. He's jealous of the fact. You know what he's got? He's got the Absalom syndrome. Now, in my counseling format, my counseling ministry, and as we get to that point in time, many of you will be introduced to that, and I'll give you my secret formula for dealing with people's problems. Everything I use, I have a syndrome that is found in the Bible. When I have somebody that's got a satanic stronghold they can't break, I have a place that I go in the Bible that the principles in the story show you how to do it. When I have somebody that's in depression, I have a depression syndrome where I go in the Old Testament, shows you a man's in depression, shows you how he got in, shows you how to get out. Everything's that way. I have what I call for my diotrephes, my Absalom syndrome. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, you don't have to look at it now. Don't even bother with it. You can look it up later. 2 Samuel chapter 15, story of Absalom. Absalom at the gate. Here's how it works. David is king. David is God's man. Absalom was David's son. See already the spiritual thing developing here? Someday you'll be the pastor. You'll be in a ministry. And somebody you'll one to Christ will be underneath you. Spiritual son. Like David and Absalom. Now Absalom was jealous of David. He was jealous of the blessing that David had in his life. Instead of going to David and saying, David... You know what, I think that I can do things as good as you, and I just think that you need to quit being king, and I need to be king. Diotrephes never operate that way. They always operate behind your back. You know what Absalom does? He goes down to the gate. Now, the gate is where everybody comes into the city. Here's what David was doing all day long. David was sitting in his throne room, and people would come in with problems. And they would say, well, King David, you know, my ex-wife here, you know, wants this, and, you know, and I don't think this is fair, and, or, you know, his chariot dented my chariot at the old Sonic place down there, you know, and we, we can't, and David would say, okay, now this is what we're going to do. He would make the judgments for the people to solve the problems for the nation of Israel. That was his job, and he used the Word of God to do it. Solomon, you find later, does the same thing. Okay, obviously, when you have to deal with people, Somebody doesn't get what they want. So Absalom was waiting down at the gate. And he'd see the person that come down there that wasn't quite as happy. Absalom would be over there saying, Hello, brother, how are you today? Why has thy countenance fallen? What happened? He went in to see the king today. You know, how'd it go? How'd it go? Praying for you, brother. Praying for you. How'd it go? Oh, really? Oh, well, that's too bad. You know what? That wasn't right. Did you ever see how many notes I got in my Bible? 
You see, now I love David, but David's kind of lost his edge. Oh, if I were king, I would have done it differently. But, oh, if I were king, I'd fix all the problems that old David. You know, David thinks he's God's man, but he's really not. I'm God's man. Oh, and if, you know, I, I feel so burdened for you. I feel your pain, brother. I feel your pain. And all I can tell you is if I were king, and you know what he tried to do? He tried to steal the hearts of the people of David. That's Diotrephes. Oh, yeah. Six of them in my life. If I be anybody around my Bible and have to shirt tomorrow, shoot you in the leg. <laughs> Jan, you got your gun? Shoot him. I'm going to give you an example. Now, and this has happened all my life. This is the best example I know. If it hasn't already happened, it's happened all my life. In some place in your life, down the line, you're going to hear this. You're going to grow into the Word of God. You're going to get into the Word of God. You're going to talk to stake a stand, and then you're going to bump into Diotrephes. And Diotrephes is going to say something to you like this. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. Well, you know what? You don't want to turn into a Bobite. You don't want to turn into an Alexanderite. You know, Bob, he has a way of, of just, of just, you want to you, you want to stay you want to be your own man you don't want to become you don't want to become made in the image of Bob and you really got to be careful <clears throat> all my life from day one in the ministry I've heard people telling my people that I were teaching the Bible with brother you better be careful following a man I had one of my boys years ago <clears throat> in the ministry now love him to death <clears throat> he got talking to one of these doctrines one time and doctrines said well, you believe that King James Bible is the Word of God? My young man says, you betcha I do, cover to cover. And he said, well, you're just following a man. A man told you it was the Word of God. And my boy looked up and said, who told you it wasn't? You see, everybody he says you're following a man is following somebody. But you know why the Bible says? The Bible says, be ye followers of me, even though I'm followers of Jesus Christ. You're going to follow somebody. That's God's plan. He said to Paul, take what I've committed to you and commit the faithful men that they may teach others also, which was heard of you by many witnesses. You see, that's God's plan. Now, all I can tell you is this. Make sure you're following the right guy. That's all. And you know what my philosophy of life? If you can find somebody who will teach you the word of God better, be more honest to you than I will, and love you better than I will, drop me like a bad habit and go for it, man. I'm honest. I have no problem with it. Somebody says, aren't you afraid these, these, these guys will come in and steal your people? Let me tell you something. If you can steal my people, you can have them. I got nothing. I'm not in this. This is no competition for me. I asked God to build around me men and women <coughs> who wanted to put on the gear, get in the trenches, and fight. Too much battle for you? I understand. Can't straddle the battle and hit the paddle. I don't know how to sell it to you. I heard Snoop Dogg say that. I like it. Now, let me translate this for you, this Bobite, Alexanderite, and following a man stuff. Let's, let me translate it for you. I'm jealous because people are following him, and they won't look at me, and I'm really spiritual. Don't you know that I'm spiritual? I got a guy right now. Boy, I, I trained in the ministry. Good man. 
running a church about 200, 250 people. I got another boy that I trained in ministry. He's on my diatrophies list. This boy, you know, uh, I always suspected this kid. And you know what? You really never know. You never really know what a person is made of in the ministry until they get out on their own. This boy went to the mission field, failed in the mission field. Came back, <coughs> lined up with my other buddy. <coughs> and this guy now, <coughs> and he always was this way, he's come to the place where <coughs> he's the great spiritual guru of the world. He left my buddy's church and went out and started his own church. He's now running probably the magnanimous number of probably nine or ten. Magnanimous is a wonderful word. I don't know what it means, but it fits in a lot of things that I say. About two years after he left my buddy's church, he calls my buddy on the phone. And he says, can we have lunch together? My buddy says, well, sure, yeah. He sits down with my buddy and he says, I really want to help you. My buddy says, okay, how? And he says, you know, God has showed me things that he, he never showed Bob, me. He showed me things that he never showed Mel, Mel Spock. And he says, brother, he says, I just want to help you minister to your people in your church. Now get this, this kid's running nine, my guy's running 300. <laughs> Diotrophies. I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. I mean, it's one of those things where he's saying, don't you know, I want your people to follow, I want people to follow. And the only way he's building a church is he goes in to these churches and he pulls the young Christians aside and he starts downplaying my buddy, telling him that he's lost touch. Oh, he's so busy. He doesn't have time to minister to you. I will be your spiritual guru. Absalom at the gate. You know what? He'll never build a church. He hasn't got the courage to build a church. He hasn't got the character to build a church. All he's going to do all is his life because he's so puffed up with what he thinks he knows. He said to me one time, he says, you think you know more about the Bible than the world. And I said, no, I don't. But I do know this. I know more about it than you do. And I'm telling you. His whole life he's going to walk around thinking he's this gigantic spiritual Goodyear blimp that he's got, the, he's got all the answers of truth in life. And I'm telling you, man, they're out there. And you know what? I look at that thing and I think to myself, I learned some things over the years. Back about 150 A.D., there was a guy by the name of Mane. And all the spiritual gurus around him were departing from the Word of God. And Mane said, you know what? I'm sticking with the book. And the people in his church and people in other places said, we're with him. And they broke from the norm that day or that time period of 150 A.D. And all those Bible-believing groups that said, we're staying with the Word of God, the opposition looked at him and he said, oh, you're following a man. You know what they called him? They called him Manichians after Mane. In 160 A.D., there was a guy by the name of Novatius. Where Mane in later life invented mayonnaise, Novatius in later life no, invented Novocaine. Put those notes down. They'll help you 
at some point. Novatius was a saved, Bible-believing man. He followed the old Latin manuscripts out of Antioch and Syria. The world around him, Christian world, was collapsing, and the whole world was going into that evangelical mindset of the day. And Novatius said, I ain't going. I'm sticking with the book. You know what Novatius believed? He believed the same thing you and I believe. His people were called Novatians because they're following a man. In 180, you had another guy by the name of Nestorius. Same scenario. His followers were called Nestorians. Around 1200 A.D., you had a man by the name of Henry of Lausanne who was taking a stand against the corruption in the Roman Catholic Church. The, the hierarchy at that time said, you're following a man, and they called his people Henrysians. Yes. I don't know what he invented, but it's not important. Around 1300, there was a bunch of believers that said, hey, we're not following the teachings of Peter like the Roman Catholic Church is. No, no, no. We know that the New Testament was written by Paul, three-quarters of it, and that's the doctrine of the church. And somebody said, you're just following a man. So they called them Paulicians. See how it works? In 1850, evolution was coming in, and all the great Bible teachers were heading for the rocks. They all were dumping the book. And there was one guy during this period of time whose name was Darby. And he taught the gap just like we teach it. He taught the six years, little creation, thousand years, just like we believe it. He believed the Bible, and he is the only guy during that time that takes a stand for the book, and they called his followers Darbyites. You and I are sitting here today in a, in a New Testament Bible-believing Baptist church. We're independent or dependent, however you want to look at it. Some of us are codependent. But anyway, we're, we're to the place where we're not, in, we're not connected with any organization. We're not a member of the Southern Baptist. We're not a member of the General Baptist. We're not many of anything. We're about as renegade ragtag as you can get. If you want to find where we're at in the Bible, go back there with David. And we're, we're the guys at the cave of Abdullah. Just a bunch of old broken down wrecks that all got together with a guy that typified Christ and they taught him the Bible. And you know what? When we come out of this thing, we're here today because back in the 19th and 1930s, there was a man that took a stand against the organized Baptist departure from the truth, and he took such a stand, and he was such a wild man that they called him the Texas Tornado. And his name was J. Frank Norris. And he led single-handedly the demise of the Southern Baptists and the exodus of every fundamental Baptist church on the planet today, and the followers that followed him were called Norrisites. Down in Pensacola, Florida, there's a man that I wouldn't have my Bible today if it wasn't for that man. You wouldn't have it either, nor would about 100 million other young men who believe the Bible is the Word of God. His name is called Peter S. Ruckman. Peter S. Ruckman, in the last days of the latest, is the last Philadelphian soldier that I know of that has taken a stand unequivocally that will die believing what he believed when he got saved. He's the only one that's standing up for the truth. He's the, he's the reason why we have our Bible, why I have my Bible, and why nine million men have the Word of God in, around this world today, and they call me and you Ruckmanites. So when somebody calls you a Bobite or an Alexanderite, you are in good company with history in the church because everybody follows somebody. The Diotrephes want you to follow them. And because of they want the preeminence of men, 
They don't like you following somebody else, so they slander that person. They're malicious to that person, and they'll try to set that person down so they can set themselves up. And you got them. And let me tell you something. The Diotrephes never died out with this guy. You know, Paul had the same problem. He said, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. He said, Demas had forsaken him. The church at Corinth uh, was against him. Hymenius was against him. And that's why he says down here, I will remember, I will remember his deeds. Because you don't want to get blindsided by a diatrophies. But they're so easy to spot. Their insecurity just reeks all over the place. Anytime you've got to tell somebody how spiritual you are, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And the diatrophies will always be around. So what you do is you recognize their great spiritual gifts. You recognize what great spiritual giants they are. You recognize that truth and truth alone rests with them. You recognize God has set them up and, and given them the great seek deep secrets of the Bible. And then you put them back in their high chair. You fasten their bib on. You give them a little milk. You pat them on the head. And then you pick up your weapon. And then you man your post. Because diatrophies will never be there. See, he can't ever hit the foxhole. He can't figure out those little things on the side of the high chair to get it off. And so from a practical standpoint, you have two guys. And I'm telling you that because men, as you grow, as you take responsibility, you're going to run into both. Hey, our church, full of gaiuses. I'm happy as can be. My diatrophies are in the history of my life. I, God protects me from them now. I mean, I, I, he just don't let them come. And when they are here, they're out. He, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't mess with it. He, he, he's got his hand on us in a peculiar way. And we cannot take that for granted in any way, shape, or form. And that's why we've got to understand that the gayuses that we have, they are the blessings of my heart and of my soul. Maybe you're not where you ought to be, but I'll get you there. Just listen to your coach. I'll put you in the game. But you've got to learn the fundamentals of the playbook. Man, that all sounds really good. I don't know nothing about sports. Oh, I ain't done with this page yet. All right, now, doctrinally. I know I make people mad and they leave. I'm <laughs> There's something I said. Okay. <sighs> You're staying. Get this. Now, doctrinally. Now, it's all the practical side. Not some good stuff, man. That'll tell you where it's at, boys. And I'm telling you, I'm not, I'm not pulling any punches with it anymore. We're at the point now where you better learn the blunt facts of the ministry. And I'm just telling you, they're out there, and it's in every ministry, and it'll exist for one reason, that is to destroy the work of God. And I thank God for the fact that we don't have them here. We got the best there is. Now, doctrinally, 3 John puts it all together in his last book dealing with the uh, epistles here before he writes the book of Revelation. And he really hits on the sub-theme of the Bible doctrinally. Because, and this is very important. You know, if you have any experience at all in the Bible, even, in, even just starting in it, you'll be, it'll be easy for you to see how the Bible is built around two men, a wise man and a foolish man. The wise man is a man who finds the truth of God. The foolish man is someone who stays a fool and rejects the truth of God. It's just that simple. 
Now, even in that, there's some good practical lessons. But doctrinally, these two men are the two aspects of the nation of Israel. The Gentile world is made up of two kinds of people, saved and unsaved. The nation of Israel is also made up of two kinds of people, wise and foolish. And that's what we're going to talk about. Now, Gaius, he represents that wise man. He rep represents the nation of Israel as the wise man. Diotrephes, he represents the nation of Israel as the foolish man. And you can't miss this great truth. That's through the whole Bible. You come to the book of Psalms, the whole book of Psalms is about two men, a wise man and a foolish man. The whole book of Psalms. You take Psalm 107, 43, it says this, Whoso is wise and will observe the things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of God. Psalm 14, 1 says, The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. You see the two? A wise man and a foolish man. All through the book of Proverbs. You take uh, book of Psalms. You take the book of Proverbs. You know what the book of Proverbs is about? It's about two men. A wise man and a foolish man. The wise man is like some little idiot doesn't have any understanding, and he gets he goes walking down the street, you know, and they're on the corner uh, on a Saturday night in the red light district is a harlot with a harlot's attire, and he thinks, man, she's beautiful. And he hangs out with a harlot, and that harlot is a picture of organized religion, uh, the horror, great horror of Babylon, chapter Revelation, chapter 18, and she swallows him up and he dies. The other foolish man in the Bible, he goes with the evil man, which is a picture of philosophy, science, education without God. He gets swallowed up and he dies. The wise man in the book of Proverbs, he stays with God and becomes a virtuous woman in Proverbs chapter 31. You know what Proverbs says? Proverbs 1.5 says, wise men will hear, A wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsel. Proverbs 15.5 says, A fool despises his father's instruction. Now that's true of a practical sense. It's true of, of, you see, when Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, he writes it to a son. Now that son is Rehoboam. You know who Rehoboam is in the Bible? He's one of the biggest fools anywhere in the Bible. His father embraced the word of God. Rehoboam rejected the word of God. His father is the wisest man in the Bible. Rehoboam bears the title of the biggest fool in the Bible. He messes up Israel so bad they never recover. The book of Ecclesiastes is the same way. Ecclesiastes 10.2 says, A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. Bible's filled with the example, all dealing with the type of the nation of Israel. All the way back in Genesis, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Abraham and Lot, Isaac and Ishmael, Saul and Samuel, David and Absalom, Solomon and Rehoboam. One's wise, one's foolish. This wise, foolish concept is a picture of the nation of Israel at the second coming of Christ. That's why when you come into the gospel in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and 29, it tells you the story of two men. One's, one's a wise man, one's a foolish man. The wise man builds his house upon a rock. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 29, the wise man builds his house upon a rock. That rock is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the winds come and the, and the, and the rain comes, picture the tribulation period. That house, the house of Israel, is firmly implanted on the rock. The other man, foolish man, builds his house, the house of Israel, on the sand. Sand's a picture of this world. Rocks in the Bible are always picture of God. Rocks are God-made. Rocks stick for the stability of God. So when a man builds upon a rock, he's building upon God. When a man builds upon the sand, sand shifts. Sand's never the same. Sand doesn't hold any weight. Sand shifts underneath of you. The wind blows it everywhere it goes. It changes shape. It changes form. It changes stability. It loses stability. When it's wet, it's strong. When it dries out, you'll sink in it. 
Sand is not what you want to build upon, but it is a picture of the nation of Israel building themselves upon the sand. The most famous example is in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 10. I'll just read it for you. It says, And then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps, and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise. There it is. Five of them were foolish. There it is. And they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. And the wise took their vessels with their lamps, but while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Picture of Israel right now. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. Picture of Israel at the second coming of Christ. And all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said unto the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there not be enough for us and for you, but rather you go to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Picture the second coming of Christ. Picture the two types of the nation of Israel. Or, excuse me, two types of Jews in the nation of Israel. <coughs> One of them is wise. They follow God. They get into the Word of God. They do what's right. One's foolish. They never follow it. One builds their house on a rock. The other one builds it on the sand. And so you're going to find that when John writes, 3 John, he writes it from that standpoint. He lays it out from the standpoint that everything is built on those two concepts. In the body of Christ, you have men like Gaius and men like Diotrephes. You have one that's a wise man, one that's a foolish man. In the doctrinal arena, you have the nation of Israel. And within that nation, there are men who are going to be wise and do what the Word of God says. There's going to be men that's foolish and build their house upon the sand. And it's as simple as that. But that's how the book lays out. But all of it comes back to the practical side of it. All of it comes down to this. Where have you, as an individual, built your house today? Is your house your body built on the foundation of the Word of God? Or is it built on the shifting sands of this old world, which change from day to day? You see, sand changes. Rock never does. Every head bowed and every eye closed. <clears throat>